Tributes are paid to the force's sweetheart, Dame Vera Lynn, who's died at the age of 103. I did bring messages of love and just brought the parted ones that little bit nearer together. Clashes on the China-India border, we get an assessment from the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Extremely significant. You know, India is the world's most populous democracy. We need to be extremely aware this is a very, very serious moment for all of us. And a new study has launched on the impact of COVID-19 on the veteran community. So we also expect that there might be positive outcomes from extra volunteering or getting involved in the community and caring, kind of giving back. I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP. Dame Vera Lynn, known as the Forces Sweetheart, has died at the age of 103. Dame Vera inspired a generation living through the Second World War. The BBC's Robert Hall looks back at her life. Born as the First World War ended, Vera Lynn became a symbol of what the Second was fought to preserve. She was an ordinary East End girl, fresh-faced rather than beautiful, her voice sincere, not operatic. And for thousands of fighting men, she was the girl they hoped would be waiting when they got back home. In 1941, the same year she married musician Harry Lewis, she was given her own radio show for the troops, Sincerely Yours. I was the girl next door, really, because I wasn't a glamorous type uh, and they didn't look at me as a, as a sort of a pin-up kind. But I did bring messages of love and and hope and uh, just brought the parted ones that little bit nearer together. A BBC internal memo apparently stated, sincerely yours deplored, but popularity noted. It was a grudging recognition of her tremendous appeal. The men of the armed services voted Vera Lynn the force's sweetheart in a newspaper poll. In 1944, she spent several months entertaining the troops in Burma, for which, 40 years later, she was awarded the Burma Star. And in the 1950s, she became the first British artist to reach the top of the American charts with Alf Wiedersehen's sweetheart. With love that's true, I'll wait for you. campaigned vigorously for better pensions for war widows and for decades she was a fixture at major events commemorating World War II, including the Hyde Park celebrations in May 1995, which marked the 50th anniversary of the end of the war in Europe. She was still recording in old age, topping the album charts at the age of 92 and releasing another album on her 100th birthday. Her voice was heard again this year, Vintage recordings accompanying tenor Alfie Bow. And soprano Catherine Jenkins to lift community spirit during the current pandemic. Vera Lynn, still helping to sustain a nation in an hour of need. Keep smiling through, just like you always do. Well, our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, is with me now. Uh, Christopher, ahead of the 75th anniversary of VE Day, 
Dame Vera spoke about the bravery and the sacrifice that characterised the wartime generation. Her songs captured that, didn't they? Yeah, and I tell you, the great thing about the songs, they were easy to sing. They were a bit like hymns in a way, that everybody would know the tune and you could pick up the words quite easily and people cried over them. She'd worked with a guy who became her husband who was a saxophone player in a band called Ambrose, Ambrose's band, and they played that sort of music. And so when they did it, Alvita said that that's why it got to number one in America, because America could sing to it as well. And the Queen referenced one of her songs when she told the country during lockdown, we will meet again. Can you imagine it? A couple saying goodbye. And what do they finish off? I'll see you later. Or the equivalent of we will meet again. And that's what the Queen picked up, knowing she didn't have to explain it. does seem like the end of an era, doesn't it? It is. Well, I tell you, I've often thought there were three great leaders, voice leaders, images of World War II. There was de Gaulle, who didn't lead anything really except the, the spirit of France. There was Churchill and there was Vera Lynn. And they all sang, they all said things that people could remember. They could pick up the phrases in it. It was almost... Like hymns, you know, can you sing them on Sunday? If so, you'll have them forever. And we'll meet again. White Cliffs of Dover. People are still can still remember the tunes. NATO defence ministers have met this week in the shadow of Donald Trump's decision to withdraw 9,500 troops from Germany. So we have 52,000 soldiers in Germany. It's a tremendous amount of soldiers. It's... Uh... Tremendous cost to the United States. And uh, Germany, as you know, is uh, very delinquent in their payments to NATO. And they're paying 1%, and they're supposed to be a 2%, and the 2% is very low. It should be much more than that. So they're delinquent of uh, billions of dollars, and this is for years delinquent. In response, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said it hadn't been decided how and when this decision would be implemented. Batting Gigrich is the Director of Defence and Military Analysis at the IISS and previously worked for the German Federal Ministry of Defence in research and policy roles. I asked how significant is this announcement from President Trump for NATO? If it is confirmed, I think it is very significant because it suggests a lack of strategic rationale and a lack of communication that is surprising among allies. And I think it symbolises that perhaps President Trump does not quite understand that alliances are the U.S.'s, uh, I would call the U.S.'s biggest strategic advantage in the geopolitical competition with China and also uh, with Russia. So I think it is significant because it undermines the trust uh, and, the, and the, the, the patterns of predictor, predictable behavior that really are required for an alliance to function well in both its political and its military dimensions. And the idea of a delinquent Germany, as President Trump talked about, not paying her fair share, in reality, it is right, though, that Germany isn't paying 2% of GDP on defence, is it? Germany is not paying uh, 2% uh, of GDP on defence, that is correct. Uh, uh, depending on which figures, sets of figures you use, uh, currently it is around between 1.4 and 1.2% of GDP. Uh, but the issue is uh, that the defense investment pledge that NATO heads of states and government agreed in 2014 requires countries that do spend 2% or more on defense to continue to do so and those who spend less to move in the direction of 2%. So that's an important difference because 
if you look at the development of Germany's defense budget since 2014, so since this defense investment pledge was agreed, the arrows are actually pointing in the, in the right direction and, and German defense spending has increased, it has gone up. My issue is, is a different one, um, namely that uh, while I believe that Germany should spend more on defense, uh, the way that Donald Trump goes about it makes that harder to achieve because he stands in the way of a discussion in Germany that is actually focused on the threats and security challenges that are out there and therefore what the right level of spending is in relation to that uh, and, and uh, his tendency to um, uh, Hector uh, across the, uh, the Atlantic, so to speak, and, and lecture uh, uh, people about the correct uh, spending levels uh, stands in the way of having an informed conversation and makes it a very political issue, which I don't think is helpful. Some make the argument, though, that there's been fierce criticism from President Trump in terms of countries paying more, but he has in practice backed plans for US deployments in Poland, Norway, etc. So that's fair. I think this is actually where one can see um, how short-sighted the, the uh, announcement is that President Trump has made. Uh, because in, you're right to say that the Trump administration, as previous administrations before him, have actually uh, done and enacted measures to strengthen NATO's deterrence and defense posture in Europe. Um, uh, and that is today uh, built around uh, a, number, a number of elements, uh, pre-positioned material, deployment of troops, including rotational uh, deployment uh, of troops, exercise, and so on and so forth. And, uh, uh, and, and there's always been this disconnect between what Trump says on his Twitter feed and then what the policy has been. Uh, and, and I think, unfortunately, now uh, with this announcement, uh, the policy moves closer to Trump's Twitter feed. And I think that is a disadvantage for NATO and, frankly, uh, hence uh, an, uh, an advantage to uh, Russia uh, because it undermines that sense of cohesion and that sense of shared purpose uh, in NATO, if it is enacted, and as I said before, uh, we don't know yet um, what the ultimate decision actually will be. We don't know yet how many troops ultimately, we don't know what kind of troops, we don't know whether some of them will be redeployed within Europe or some of them might go to Asia, some of them might come home to the US. We, we don't know those details yet, so it's a bit premature to really uh, speculate on the ultimate effects of this. But I think the effect on cohesion within NATO is already visible. Uh, and uh, frankly, uh, it is a discussion that has confused uh, a lot of Europeans. Bastian Giegrich, Director of Defence and Military Analysis at the IISS. Well, still with me is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. And Christopher, the United States has been over several years pivoting more to the Asia-Pacific region, hasn't it? This time last year, in fact, this month last year, there was a meeting of American strategy or strategists uh, who look at Indo-Pacific regions. In other words, they were looking and say there was the threat was China. In other words, it wasn't Europe. So we shouldn't be surprised that they were thinking this time last year of pulling people out of Europe. Equally, they're going to put more people into, and I think the next announcement will be about Poland. The Americans have got 4,500 people in Poland at the moment. Um, they were, what they can, you'll find they'll do is set up a permanent divisional headquarters there and the reconnaissance headquarters, and maybe even special forces as well. That will be the basis of the future projection. The other thing, they're pulling out of Germany. 
Let's get this right. They've still got 40 bases in Germany, including Rammstein, which is rather like having Wisconsin in Germany. You know, it's big. They're still there. And they've also got nuclear capability in Germany as well. So that's all it is. Now, the way foreign policy and aid is organised at the heart of government is set to change. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, told MPs that merging the Foreign Office with the Department for International Development would mean aid spending better reflected UK aims. I have decided to merge DFID with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, to create a new department, a new department, the Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office. And this will unite our aid with our diplomacy and bring them together in our international effort. But Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer said the move would weaken UK influence. Earlier, Paul Osborne spoke to the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, the Conservative MP Tom Tugendhat, and asked him whether the change was necessary. Yes, it is. I've uh, long argued for the strategic alignment of British foreign policy, and it's something that uh, many of us have called for for a number of years. Indeed, I spoke about it in a speech to Rusi a number of years ago. But this shouldn't just stop here. It should actually include trade, because... Uh, the reality is that Britain's overseas approach really needs to be much more joined up, uh, and I look forward to this being part of that process. You say it should include trade. Do you think it should also include defence? You've certainly said in the past that you can only get so far with diplomacy when issues like defence are being tackled in a separate department. It shouldn't include defence in the sense of preparation of uh, military assets or training, no. But what it should do, it should be the Foreign Office has the strategic overview for Britain's lay down overseas. The Defence Department should not be running its own foreign policy, which is certainly something it has done in the past. A lot of people have said that the world has become more unstable since the pandemic. Do you think that's a fair summation? I think there are huge challenges around the world and uh, stability is something that's normally been illusory rather than real. So I'm not sure it's become more unstable, but it's certainly true that uh, many countries are going to find dealing with not only the COVID crisis, but the economic outpouring that will follow trickier than uh, than they did before. And you've talked in the past about the need for a global strategy on China. You've said that it has the potential to be the biggest challenge the liberal world's seen since the end of the Cold War 30 years ago. What, what sort of strategy would that be? What would that entail? Most of that strategy would be to do with building up partnerships with liberal democracies around the world, countries like Singapore, South Korea, Japan, India, Australia, Canada, and so on, to partner each other, to support each other in defending the international rules-based system. Uh, and that's the most important element of maintaining the networked world that allows us to trade and to travel largely in peace and prosperity. Now, you're the chair of this new group of MPs, this China Research Group. There's been a lot of concern, obviously, about China with regard to uh, its attitude to Hong Kong. We've seen issues with uh, Taiwan scrambling fighter jets in the last few days because of incursions into, into its airspace. But we've also had this situation in the Himalayas, these deaths and clashes between India and China. How concerned are you about that? Extremely concerned. Look, uh, the Chinese incursions into India over recent years uh, something that have happened uh, infrequently, but certainly not never. I mean, they have happened a few times. And uh, what we're seeing now is the first death since 1975. And that really is uh, extremely significant. Now, India is the world's most populous democracy. 
and a very old and close partner of the United Kingdom. And I think we need to be extremely aware this is a very, very serious moment for all of us. A lot of people have warned that the pandemic could be used as cover by some nations when they think that the world isn't necessarily watching. Well, I hope that isn't the case. I mean, I hope very much that uh, countries will act responsibly. That was the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Tom Tugendhat, there. Uh, And Christopher, what is the background to these clashes on the Indian-Chinese border he mentioned? Well, you can go back 60 years. Because, you know, if you look at it, this is the, this is the great uh, Gualwan Valley, which is 2,000 miles along the Himalayas, the border between the Himalayas. You've got on one side, you've got India in, uh, I suppose, Kashmir. And on the other side, you've got China in the Aksai Chin Valleys and, and, and plateaus. They have eyeballed each other since the 1960s. In fact, they went to war in the 1960s over this very, very, very stretch of land. Interestingly... Paul was asking uh, Tom Tuckenhardt whether countries might sort of do things while nobody is watching. The answer is no. If you look what Indians' reaction has been, and they took quite a hit on this. I mean, the Chinese apparently threw them over the cliff. Now, India is expected to react to that and hasn't done very much. And Korea is in the headlines this week as well, with North Korea blowing up a joint liaison office in a border town. The North Koreans are undergoing certain changes. Is the emergence of Kim Yo Jong, the sister of, of, of Kim, the leader of, of uh, North Korea. And she's taking more of a lead in reacting to what happens in South Korea. And one of the things happening in South Korea is people are filling up balloons and floating balloons into North Korea, rubbishing Kim. They don't like that at all. And, and also the North Koreans are a bit fed up with the fact that the talks with America didn't go any further. And they think the South Koreans could have got them going. So they're blowing this thing up and say, right, all bets are off and we're going to put in forces into that area and that shows you any troubles we have with you, we're ready for it. It's coming to terms with with realities, but creating, as she would say, Kim Yo-jong would say, we create our own realities and you have to recognise them for what they are, but don't fool with them. This is Zitrat. Now, the coronavirus pandemic has seen veterans contribute to their communities by volunteering and raising money, highlighted by the achievements of Captain Sir Tom Moore. We are surrounded by so many good people in this country and we'll continue to do so because we're a very good lot. Well, now the government has launched a new study to understand the effect of COVID-19 on veterans themselves. It'll be undertaken by researchers at the King's Centre for Military Health Research at King's College London. They'll be contacting thousands of veterans and asking them to fill in an online questionnaire. The results will be used to help focus services. I asked Dr Marie-Louise Sharp, a senior research associate at the centre, why they felt such research was necessary. So veterans are an important part of the community and may have, during this kind of COVID crisis, the pandemic, been overlooked. And so we, we wanted to focus on veterans. We were also approached by the OVA concerned um, to support ex-service groups. But at the same time, we also have at the King Centre of Military Health Research, we also have our cohort study, which has run since 2003. Um, And so this is a group of approximately 20,000 armed forces who at that point um, were recruited to the cohort study. Um, They had served in either Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, And this study has been going on for 15 years or so now. Um, And as part of that, we have a really big group of veterans um, who have left service 
And so we actually have a lot of information on them, their health, how they're doing. um, And really, it gives us good evidence in which to look at how they're going through COVID at the moment, and both kind of positive and, and negative impacts as well. So the, the Office for Veterans Affairs, the OVA, approached you about it. But um, up until this point, do you think there's been any evidence that veterans in particular have been suffering any more than anyone else during the pandemic? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So the pandemic is, you know, it's affecting all of us and there will be very similar pressures on many people, whether that's employment or childcare or caring responsibilities. So there's a certain level of which that's the same for everyone. I think um, with this study, we don't exactly know how the veteran community might be affected. And so it, it is really an exploratory study, but there are some things from our previous work which we might be able to guess that it may be affecting the veteran community in certain ways. So, for example, we know the majority of people are well, um, left service well and kind of get on. There is a minority, though, who do have kind of health, mental health issues, employment issues as well. And because we know that there's certain groups more at risk um, and particularly veterans who deployed and also were frontline combat, particularly more at risk, higher risk for PTSD and depression. So there's certain risk categories. And it's well known that COVID and pandemics in this situation will affect people with pre-existing either mental health problems or health problems more than others. So on that side of it, we could expect that there might be extra pressures added on top of people of a group that are more at risk of some of these issues. But also on the positive side, we also know that, you know, being part of the armed forces kind of used to crises, um, deployments, strange situations, and actually might be quite well prepped in a way to deal with some of the issues of lockdown and the pandemic. We also know that after people leave service, there's still a culture of kind of giving and community and and service. And so we also expect that there might be positive outcomes from extra volunteering or getting involved in the community and caring, kind of giving back. And so really, we're exploring kind of all of these different aspects, both positive and negative, and not assuming that it would just be negative either for the veteran community. So, yeah, as you're saying, it could be as a result of service that uh, these particular veterans might actually be more resilient than somebody else in the community who who has had previous mental health problems simply because of the nature of the work and their experience. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. And so there's there's a certain aspect of, you know, they've been through certain things and they're kind of well prepped, well trained and might be used to strange circumstances There's also on the other side of that something that we call um, post-traumatic growth. So when people have been through a trauma, something difficult that, you know, might have hit them for a time, but actually there's a period of growth through that. Uh, And some of the things include, you know, more of an appreciation of others, um, more of a sense of purpose, um, worthwhile living. And so actually some people in the armed forces who might have experienced trauma and have had this growth, they'll be using all of those things right now, um, all of those kind of coping skills and strategies right now to deal with um, issues in the pandemic. Dr Marie-Louise Sharp there. It's 80 years today that Charles de Gaulle made his famous speech from the BBC in London, urging France to fight on against the German occupation. In the first head of state visit since lockdown, the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, is in London meeting the prime minister and members of the royal family. Four French resistance fighters are also being awarded MBEs. 
No recording remains of the original broadcast. The broadcaster, Edward Sturton, has written about it. I asked him how significant it was. Hugely significant, and the odd thing is that no-one quite realised it at the time because he was such a, an obscure figure when he arrived in Britain, basically as a, a fugitive from the new French government established in southern France at the, um, the time of the German victory in the armistice. The BBC certainly didn't know who he was. Not many people back in France knew who he was. But actually, it's now looked back on as the speech which firstly launched the French resistance and secondly, critically, launched the career of Charles de Gaulle, who, of course, was the, the founding father of modern France, you could argue. Indeed, and this speech, strangely, almost never happened because of concerns in the Cabinet. Well, indeed, and I mean, it was entirely down to Churchill that it did happen because he'd formed a, an admiration for de Gaulle on the brief meetings they'd had in the last days before the German victory. And when de Gaulle turned up, flown out of France on a, on a plane, which indeed Churchill had lent him, de Gaulle went straight to Downing Street, found Churchill working in the garden, balmy afternoon, um, and he said, can you help me? And Churchill said, yes, have the BBC. Um, and that was really how it began. The Cabinet, of course, didn't take quite such a sort of cheerful view of it because they were concerned about upsetting the new regime in France and thought there was just a chance they might persuade it to go on fighting against the Germans from the, the French Empire overseas. And they met without... Churchill, who was working on one of his great speeches that afternoon, decided that de Gaulle shouldn't be allowed to broadcast. And it was only after Churchill sent one of his aides round, scurrying round everybody in the cabinet and persuaded them individually to change their minds, that de Gaulle was actually allowed to go ahead and make this momentous broadcast. Yeah, it produces um, very interesting images of all these people running around trying to sort this out. And it was the start of a relationship where de Gaulle used the BBC to send messages to France. Yes, I mean, the French service became a fantastically important factor in the French World War II story, both in terms of its impact on morale, because these voices came over from a place that was still free, that was still resisting the Nazis, but also operationally when they began to send these extraordinary secret messages um, across the airways which would instruct resistance cells to blow up bridges or start attacking trains or, or whatever it was, concealing them in the personal messages that people based in London sent back to friends and family in France using, using the, the BBC to do it. And, and the climax of all that was, of course, D-Day, and there were so many secret messages broadcast that the, the BBC bosses got rather concerned that, that the news would be squeezed out altogether by this sort of endless stream of extraordinary statements. The crab shall eat snakes and I've followed the lonely way and all these mysterious messages, which, of course, the Germans knew were code, but they couldn't interpret. Edward Stoughton there. And Christopher, you said earlier Charles de Gaulle was one of the great wartime leaders why? Because it was the great image, and at the end of it, the, the people, people that don't know what's going to happen with any certainty, look around and say, right, who's telling us? Who do we believe? And the French believed de Gaulle. I must remember what was in that speech of his, and when he said, you know, said to the French people, she is not alone, meaning France, she is not alone. She, he said she's got a vast empire behind her. She can form an alliance with the British Empire, which holds all the seas and continues the fight. Hitler actually believed that as well. Hitler always reckoned that he could actually beat Britain, but what he didn't want the thing to do is to turn into a world war. And the reason it would turn into a world war because there was the British Empire. And so de Gaulle was hitting the right notes, not only with his people, but with the enemy. Let's now return to our top story. And on the day we've heard that Dame Vera Lynn has died, here she is in her own words. When I did my first performance in front of an audience, I was seven. 
man that was at a working men's club. And uh, a friend of the family sort of worked the clubs and he heard me sing at home one day and he said, oh, he'd like to take me on one of the concerts. And mum and dad, being club people, said, oh, yes, that's fine, you know. So that really is what started it. This country is at war with Germany. I was having tea in the garden with my parents and we heard the war had been declared. I said, well, that's me for the factories, you know. Uh, there'll be no entertaining. My career will go up the chute. You'll hear from me again next week. Good night, boys. Sincerely yours, Vera Lynn. We'll meet again. Don't know where. Don't know where. We'll meet again was a sentimental song, you know. An optimistic song. It was... Hope. You have been listening to Vera Lynn's Letter from Home. With her was Fred Hartley and his music. The presentation was by Howard Thomas. Next Sunday night again at half past nine. Sincerely yours, Vera Lynn. There'll be bluebirds over the white cliffs of I tried to stay as British and English as I could, you know, singing all the songs that the boys I knew knew. And I didn't want to sort of Americanize myself. I wanted to say, like the girl next door or their family's voices. Tomorrow. When the world is free. And that's it for this week. Thanks to Christopher and to all of this week's guests. Don't forget you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And at bfbs.com slash SITREP, you can listen back to past episodes and subscribe to the podcast. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.